morning, everybody. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I shared how my height was not very advantageous when I was on an airplane. <laughs> well, uh, it turned out that it had some benefits too. It made me, it, it made me a little bit better at basketball. <laughs> and so when I, was in, when I was in middle school, middle school throughout high school, I, I was a part of the, of the middle school basketball team. So this is a picture, this uh, little skinny, scrawny, bowl cut headed <laughs> kid here. Uh, this is me in seventh or eighth grade, I forget, I forget which. And so in seventh eighth, and eighth grade, I was a very proud member of the Dawkins Middle School basketball team. Okay, now go ahead and go to the next picture. Okay, so this picture here, uh, it's, it's not super clear, but if you could zoom in, if it was a little bit clearer, um, you, you would see this expression that was on my face. And it's an expression that can only be described as a snarl. And I had this look in my face going up for the jump ball, it's kind of like. And so you might, be, you might be wondering, so how did this, you know, innocent looking, angelic, bold cut headed, you know, scrawny little seventh grade kid, how, what happened for him to be transformed into this this guy that looks like he would sell his own mother if it would allow him to get that ball. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. So uh, we were the, the Dawkins, we were the R.P. Dawkins Middle School Bearcats. That was our team, we were the Bearcats. And I'm not sure what a Bearcat is. I don't know if you've ever seen a Bearcat. It sounds like something somebody made up because they needed more names for school sports teams. It sounds a little bit like a Liger or something like that. <laughs> sounds like a Liger. Um, but anyway, so we were the Dawkins Middle School Bearcats, and every time before the game, my, my coach, who, you know, God bless people that coach middle school sports, but he, this is what he would do. It, he, so he would gather us all together and just imagine, you know, I guess you could, I don't know if, it, it, I'd probably say barely pubescent <laughs> middle school boys <laughs> gathered together, and we would all put our hands in, in the middle, and so we would do this like a chant, this is what he would have us do. He'd have us do this chant, and I know it's cheesy, it's silly, and I feel ridiculous saying it, but I'm gonna say it. <laughs> um, this is what he'd have us do. So, and just imagine these barely pubescent middle school boys who this is just the most important moment in their life, and this is the moment before they take the court, right? So our coach, we gather around, we all put our hands in the middle, and he does this kind of like, it's kind of like the, the sports version of like a call and response, he, uh, he, like he, would, he would say something, and we would, like, chant it right after him. This is, this is how it would go. So he would start off. I know this is really cheesy, but just, you know. So he would say, he would say, a bear cat. And we would be like, and we would be like, a bear cat. And he would say, it's pound for pound. And we would say, it's pound for pound. And we're, we're getting a little bit more hyped up here the most dangerous animal in the world. <laughs> the most dangerous animal in the world. And his fight, and his fight 
is always to death. <laughs> is always to death. <laughs> because he never quits. 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 And we just kind of, you know, just, and we just, just bust out of the little, like, kind of janitor's closet that we use in our locker room, and we just, like, storm down the court. And so that's how you get from the little, you know, kind of that to, like, is you, you went through that type of transformation, right? So the, the reason that I say this, the reason I say all of this is because we here at Northwest are the bear, I'm just kidding, we're not. <laughs> The reason I say this is because leaders, when they try to motivate the people that, they're, that are following them, when leaders try to inspire people that are, that, are, that are following them, they typically will not say, here are some rules I want you to follow. They typically don't say, okay, I want you to go out there, I want you to dive on loose balls, I want you to fight for rebounds, and I want you to run back on defense. That's what it said, but when leaders really want to inspire the people that, they are, that are following them, they don't tell them what they want them to do, they tell them who they are. They don't tell them what they want them to do, they tell them who they are. And the message is, this is who you are, now go and act that way. This is who you are, now, go and live that way. Let what you do be a reflection of, of who you are, right? So when I'm getting ready for that jump ball, you know, when I see a, a loose ball, you know, kind of bouncing on the floor, and I don't, I, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, would a bear cat sit here and just watch that? I don't think so, and then, <laughs> right? So the reason I say all this is because in the passage we're looking at today, Jesus is telling us who we are. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, as it's really kicking off, as Jesus is unveiling his ministry, his kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus is telling his disciples who they are, which will allow them to live out of that by living out the values of his kingdom. Okay, so go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five, verse 13. And while you're doing that, I'm gonna pray for us again. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us your word. And God, I just pray that right now, Holy Spirit, you would come, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, help us to understand your word, help us to believe it, help us to obey it, and help us to be able to teach it to others too. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, before you look at this passage, who do you think you are as a disciple of Jesus. When you imagine yourself as a disciple of Jesus Christ, what image comes to your mind as you think about the role that Jesus is calling you to play in the world? What image comes to your mind? I think sometimes we think, we think of ourselves like, like culture warriors, right? We've gotta shout louder. We've gotta, you know, we've gotta, cancel them before they cancel us. Sometimes we think of ourselves as, as culture warriors. Sometimes we think of ourselves as victims, I think. 
that this, there's this big, scary world, and you know, there's, there's all these different ideologies, and oh my gosh, the, the schools are teaching what now, and it's just, it's just overwhelming. And so we think we just kind of have to hide over here in this corner. We're, we're kind of we're victims. We just kind of have to hide over in this corner and try to stay away from people and hope they'll leave us alone, okay? Well, look how Jesus describes us in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. He says, talking to his disciples, so talking to us, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and to be trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So who are we? Who are we? Jesus says that we, that you, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, he says that you are salt and you are light. Well, what's this talking about? So salt is something we take for granted today. All right, we don't think there's anything special about salt. But back in that day, salt was kind of like, petroleum. Salt was kind of like oil. It was something that there were wars that were fought for who would have the rights to a certain place that had a lot of salt resources. Because salt in the ancient world that didn't have refrigerators, didn't have freezers, salt was the most commonly used preservative. Okay, and, and again, thinking about in a culture where you couldn't just go to McDonald's and get a, you know, a, a whatever and, and, and have, have dinner, you had to, you, a family would often, you'd slaughter a, a, a lamb or a goat or something, and, and then you would eat it over the course of a, of a number of, of over a, an extended period of time, right? So you had to find out a way to keep, have the meat not spoil and not go bad. So what they would do is they would take the meat the raw meat, and they would just pack it with salt, and they would rub and kind of massage salt into the meat, and what that would do is dehydrate the meat so that it would, it would keep, so it would keep longer, and it would even make it taste better too. So when Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth, what he's saying is, just like a piece of meat, if it's left out, is going to spoil, is going to rot, is going to go bad, the world around us is spoiling. The world around us is rotting, and we are called to be preservatives in this world. Well, light, when there's darkness, when there's, when there's darkness, it's one of the most common things to be afraid of the dark. If there's one thing that would be a universal fear for, for a lot of children, it would, be, it would be the dark, right? Why is that? When there's darkness, you don't know what's around you. When there's darkness, you have no idea what threats might be there. Your imagination starts to run wild. And if there is a real threat, you won't be able to see it. You won't be able to defend yourself against it. And if you're trying to find something, if you're trying to find something you've lost, or if you're trying to find your way to a particular point, you, you can't do it. So you're gonna stumble all over stuff and you're gonna, you're gonna trip and you're gonna get hurt. So, but as soon as the 
the moment that the light comes on, even if it's just a, a, a little bit of light, the smallest amount of light immediately drives away the darkness. And when there's light and you can see, well, all of a sudden you, you relax. You, you can see where the threats are. You can see, oh, you know, there's nothing scary here. You, you can see, oh, there, there is something dangerous there. I'm going to stay away from it. I'm going to avoid it. You can see that's the thing that I've been, I've been looking for. This is the way home, right? So when Jesus is saying that we are supposed to be salt, what he's saying is that this world is full of brokenness. It's full of corruption. It's full of, of suffering, of, of pain. This world is going bad. And we are called for him to use us to be the ones that, in that suffering, in that brokenness, we are agents of healing and we are agents of restoration. And when Jesus says we are the light of the world, what he's saying is this world is a place where there are lots of people who are lost and confused. Some people know it, some people don't know it. There's a lot of people that are lost and confused trying to figure out who they are, trying to figure out what life is about. And we are meant when we see people in the world around us who are confused, who are lost, who are believing lies, it's our job, Jesus through us, the Holy Spirit through us, bringing truth, bringing clarity, and bringing peace, right? So we are the salt of the earth, and we are the light of the world. Now, I want you to notice something here. I think this is very critical, that when Jesus defines us, when he says that we are salt and we are light, think about salt and light and the way they do what they're supposed to do, okay? Salt and light are both substances that are only able to perform their function if they interact with the world around them, right? Salt might be really salty, but if it's not packed down into the meat, then it's not gonna do any good, right? And if light is covered up, you might have a really bright lamp, but if you completely cover it up with a blackout screen or something, then it's not gonna shine on anything. The salt and light are incredibly valuable, but they only perform their function when they're interacting with the world around them. So what Jesus is telling us is, he's not saying He's not saying you need to be culture warriors and overcome the world. That's not what he's saying. Because he's already done that. Jesus has already overcome the world. And he's not saying that this is a really scary world, so make sure that you, you hide and, and, and make sure people don't find you. No, he's saying, because Jesus has already overcome the world, right? So we don't have to try to fight and defeat the world because Jesus has done that already. And we don't have to hide from the world afraid of, of what's gonna happen to us if we get infected by it because Jesus has empowered us to go out into the world, to interact with the world and not become like the world, but instead be salt and to be light, right? Well, let me ask you a question. When you look at the world around you, when you look at the world around you, what do you notice? What do you notice? Do you, 
So what level would you say you are aware of the people that you interact with on a daily basis? You know, um, Travis and, and Ming and I have been doing this, this study where we've been trying to encourage each other to share our faith. And we've been reading this book called The Nine Arts of Spiritual Conversations, which I'd really recommend. And one of the things that it talks about is just the, the practice of noticing people around you. Do you notice anybody that you interact with on a daily basis? The people that you work with, the people that you go to school with? Do you ever stop to think this person is a child of God? God loves this person. This person has a story beyond just the way they interact with me. If you do, what do you notice? What types of brokenness do you see in the world around you? Now, we live in an area where people look pretty good, okay? Cary, North Carolina, the triangle, is not a place that people move because they say, I wanna be right in the middle of social decay, so I'm gonna move to Cary, right? <laughs> you know, I was talking to one church member that said, you know, like, this is not a place where you see drug addicts that are, that are homeless on the side of the road, right? This is an area where the drug addicts are driving Teslas by you on the way to their six-figure jobs, right? We live in an area where people look really good. And one of the ways, there's a warning here, Jesus says, don't lose your saltiness. If we don't wanna lose our saltiness, one thing we're gonna have to do is remember that people are not fine just because they look fine, right? People are not fine just because they look fine. If we want to not lose our saltiness, we're gonna have to learn to look deeper the way Jesus sees people and look at their hearts. Look beyond the surface to see what's underneath. Well, I think if we look beneath the surface and really see what's going on in people's lives, I think we'll see that people here need Jesus just as much as people in Ukraine do. Amen? People here need Jesus every bit as much as people in Afghanistan do or people in China do. Amen? Over the next few weeks, we're gonna be unpacking different areas of brokenness, different lies, different confusion that we see in the world around us. And I'm not talking about stuff we see on the news, not something that you know, is happening in some other country, but I'm talking about things that are happening in the lives of the people that you interact with on a daily basis. And we're gonna be talking about what it looks like to be salt and what it looks like to be light. Well, let me give you one today. What type of brokenness do we see in the world around us? Well, one area of brokenness that I think is very clear is that we live in a world that is very lonely and very isolated. Can you relate to that? We live in a world that's very lonely and that is very isolated. Okay, let me read you a few statistics. And so in 2017, 2017, the US Surgeon General declared loneliness to be a public health epidemic. He said, loneliness and isolation is a public health epidemic. And also said that loneliness, far from just making you feel kind of sad, or far from just being something you sort of need to get over, he said that chronic serious loneliness has, has very significant effects on our health. 
In fact, he said that chronic loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Chronic loneliness, he said, is about the equivalent of smoking about six, uh, 15 cigarettes a day as far as the mortality risks that are associated with it. In 2020, a survey was done of adults over the age of 18, and 61% of American adults reported feelings of serious and chronic loneliness, feeling left out, feeling poorly understood, or lacking companionship. The, one, the, the demographics that were hit the hardest were young adults, ages 18 to 25, and also mothers of young kids. Heavy social media users were also more likely to, to experience chronic loneliness, with 73% of those who were considered heavy social media users experiencing chronic loneliness, compared to just 52% of so-called light social media users. What if I told you that, that, that the, study, the, the study that did the numbers that I just read to you was from January of 2020? which means before the pandemic. Johnny really need to convince anybody that we have gotten more disconnected and more isolated and more lonely over the past two years? It's a problem, isn't it? Well, as disciples of Jesus, the question we ask is, first of all, what areas of brokenness do we see around us? And the second question we ask is, how does Jesus want to use me to bring healing and restoration and hope in this area of brokenness? So what does it look like for us as disciples of Jesus to bring healing and restoration and redemption to people who are plagued by chronic loneliness? When the truth is, and you might agree with this, many of us are too, aren't we? Even though we have a church community, we can be plagued by loneliness as well, can't we? Well, let me tell you that I believe Jesus is calling us as his disciples, as his salt and his light, in a culture that is very artificial, where people feel lonely and isolated, that Jesus is calling us to be a people who invite others into an in-person community that's full of grace and full of truth. In a world that is artificial, full of loneliness and isolation, Jesus is calling you and Jesus is calling me to invite people around us into an in-person community that is full of grace and full of truth. Turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter two. I believe this is one of the texts that the, that the speaker talked about in, in Meta, I think. Matt was, uh, I, I saw in the back of the shirt. Um, Ephesians chapter two Ephesians 2, I'm going to read 12 and 13. This is what it says. It says, remember that you were at that time, that is before you trusted Christ, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, remember that you were lonely and isolated. You didn't just feel that way, you were that way. And in verse 13 it says, but now in Christ Jesus, 
you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What does the blood of Christ have to do with us being brought closer to God and closer to each other? Jesus on the cross, he was cut off. Jesus was excluded. Jesus' father turned his back to him. He was cut off. He was isolated. He was made to feel the deepest loneliness anybody has ever experienced, deeper than you have ever experienced or I have ever experienced or will ever experience. Jesus was made to experience the, the, the most soul-crushing isolation in the history of the world so that you, in turn, in spite of your sin, in spite of everything that's wrong with you and that's wrong with me, can be brought near, can be brought not only near to God but near to each other so that we can be a community that's full of grace and truth. So when we look at what the Bible says about us as a community, a community that's full of grace and truth, it's in person, the word church in the original language in the Greek, the word ekklesia, it literally means an assembly. It means a, a gathering, a group of people that, that meet together. That's what it means. Which means that saying virtual church is a little like talking about a virtual hug, okay? It's not really a hug. <laughs> it's nice, but it's, it's not really a hug. And maybe Mark Zuckerberg's gonna design some type of haptic bodysuit where you kind of feel like, oh, I'm, I'm hugged, but, but, but you're still gonna know in the back of your mind, it's not really a hug. And in the same way, virtual church, we, we need to be around each other. We need to be around each other. That's why I say an in-person community. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, where two or three or more are gathered, where two or three or more are gathered, I'm, I'm in their midst. There's something special that happens when disciples of Jesus gather together. In Paul's letters, he often says something that makes us feel kind of strange. He says, greet each other with a holy kiss. He's not saying go around making out with each other. <laughs> He says, greet each other with a holy kiss. That was their form of a greeting. That was kind of like a, a, a fist bump or, or like a, a hug or like a handshake or something like that. What Jesus is saying, what, what Paul and what the New Testament authors are saying is that we need each other. We, we need to see each other. We need to touch each other. We need to hug each other. And that's been hard recently, hasn't it? But what I want to say is that just like it would be foolish for us to ignore the fact that there's a virus going around, it's also foolish if we try to ignore our need for this in-person community that's full of grace and truth, okay? So how can we be a part of this and how can we spread this? Because like I said before, many of us, you might hear kind of stuff about loneliness and say, I mean, talk about lonely, that's me. I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling disconnected. How am I supposed to help other people when I need that help myself? Well, let me give you two ways. So the, the first thing when we talk about what it looks like for us to be connected in this body and then to be able to spread that connection, the first thing is, that the question I wanna ask you is, to what level are you investing in this church community? To what level would you say you are investing in this church community? You see, the, the truth is, that a good church is kind of like a good marriage. A good church is kind of like a good marriage. What I mean by that is that people who are in a healthy marriage will tell you 
the, the, the secret, the key to a good marriage is not finding the best looking person and the richest person, the funniest person, and then just riding off in the sunset, right? People that are, are happily married, that have been married for a while will tell you the key to a good marriage is you find somebody that loves you and he loves Jesus and you just stick with them. You find somebody who loves you and loves Jesus and you just ride it out with them, right? There's gonna be ups and there's gonna be downs, but you say, this is us, this is what we're doing, right? And you stick with them and in the process, you become closer than you ever could imagine that you could be. Now here's the thing. I believe that a lot of people in the evangelical church today, we understand that principle about marriage. But I don't know if we completely understand that that's what makes a good church too. What makes a good church, if you really wanna experience powerful, life-changing community, it's not find the best preacher and the best music and the, 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 the youth group with the most activities and the, the building that's the, the coolest and the place that's closest to you and, and, and say, oh, we found the best of everything and we go here for the sermon and we go to here for the music and we go here because we like this community group or, or whatever. That's not the way to experience life-changing community. The way to experience life-changing community is the same way. To say, find, find a group of people that love Jesus and love you and just stick with them. And just stick with them. The enemy of a healthy marriage is comparison, right? The enemy of us being a, a community, an in-person community full of grace and truth is consumerism, where we're constantly saying, oh, this is better over here, this is better over here, this is better over here. The point is, what makes life-changing community is finding a group of people that love you and love Jesus and just, and, and sticking, and sticking with them. Let me ask you another question. When you come to church, what's your mindset? What's your mindset? I think that very often when we, when we come in the door, we're asking a question. And that question is something along the lines of, what am I gonna get out of this today? What am I gonna get out of this today? Whether it's our, our well group, or, or, or whether it's our, our, our men's group, or our youth group, or our life group, or Sunday morning worship, what am I gonna get out of this today? What nugget can I come away with? Who can encourage me? Well, let me encourage you, let me encourage myself to instead, if you really want to experience, if you really want to experience church and community the way it was designed to be experienced, instead of coming to church with the question, what can I get from this today? Come with the question, what can I give today? Who can I encourage today? Who can I connect with today? Who can I help today? If we as a group of disciples of Jesus, even if, even if half of us commit to walking through these doors, not thinking, who's gonna connect with me? And, and who can encourage me? Or what can I learn? But instead, who can I help? Who can I serve? What can I give? This is gonna be a place that people are attracted to. Well, not only do we need to show up, we also need to open up, okay? Tim Keller says, I love this quote, he says that, he says that being known but not loved is everybody's greatest fear. Everybody's greatest fear is to be known but not to be loved. 
On the other hand, to be loved but not to be truly known, that's nice, but it's not really satisfying in a deep level. But to be fully known and fully loved, that is the deepest desire of everybody's heart. How well do you think the people around you know you? How well, is there anybody in our church, in your, in your life group, in the youth group, that you could say, that person really knows me in a deep level? Not everybody, but have you, have you been opening up to the people around you? What fears are keeping you from letting the people around you truly and deeply know you? Right? What is it that you're wrestling with, that you're struggling with, that's a daily battle for you that nobody else knows about? If we wanna be a life-changing community, if we wanna be salt and light, we not only need to show up, but we also need to open up. Well, if you consider yourself plugged in, if you would say, hey, you know, I have my life group, I have, I have my group of friends, you come here on Sunday morning, you feel pretty connected. The question I would ask you is, to what extent are you inviting other people into this community? To what extent are you inviting other people into this community? Again, we talked earlier about noticing the people that we interact with on a daily basis. What would keep you from inviting the people around you to church? What would keep you from inviting your neighbors to come to life group with you? If, and seriously, if there's ideas that you have, let us know. We want to continually be transformed into a community that's not about just putting out the best product, so get the biggest crowd or something like that, but that's we're constantly becoming a place that people can belong in. We're constantly being a place, we're constantly becoming a place where people, no matter what their spiritual background is, feel safe and feel like they belong. Well, guys, this is one of the reasons that we want to build a building, because Jesus has called us not to run from the world, not to fight against the world, but to be salt and to be light. And in a world that's full of loneliness and isolation, he's calling us to be an in-person community that's full of grace and full of truth. And if you commit to that, if I commit to that, if we commit to that, if we commit to showing up on a Sunday morning, not asking the question, what can I get, but instead, what can I give? If when we have community, we don't just try to hold on to it and protect it and not let anybody get, get into it, but instead say, hey, who can we give this away to? Who can we invite in, right? If that's the attitude that we have, people are going to see our good works and they're gonna glorify our Father who is in heaven. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your, your spirit. Thank you for what you've done to bring us near. Thank you for what you've done to allow us who used to be isolated, who used to be cut off, to be brought in, into your family. And God, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here Lord, help us to be a group of people who are committed to each other, a group of people who serve each other, a group of people who love each other. And we pray that you would add many people around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our classmates, into your kingdom as well through us. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.